Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you recognize the music, you know what today's show is all about. No, it's not the beloved Transformer, Bumblebee. Sadly, it's not about the Queen and her Bayhive. Instead, we are going to don the black and yellow stripes and talk about the science of bees. This week, we're going to learn why bees are important for our survival and how we may be able to help sustain their populations. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out how you can get involved in beekeeping and help pollinate the world. No stings attached. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to get your brain buzzing about the bountiful benefits of the humble bee. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. We've all heard that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. But when it comes to producing that fruit, along with so many others, we need to rely on a similar sounding name. Apidae. This is the official name of the family of buzzing insects we know as bees. Admittedly, most people fear bees because of their sting. They hurt. They can also send some people into anaphylactic shock. And no matter where you are in the world, there is one common understanding. Don't mess with the bees. But bees aren't our enemies. They are necessary for our survival. And these days, they're in peril. My first guest is one of the foremost experts on the benefits and health of bees in our world. His name is Noah Wilson Rich, and he is the founder of the Best Bees Company. They are working to expand the honeybee population and maintain their health and safety in a modern and urban world. Why do you love bees so much? Well, I love bees because of what they are and what they represent. You know, bees are really curious. For people, I think there's a lot of wonder in a beehive. So I love bees for that sense of wonder in a society. That's pretty cool. So how they live together. And then, of course, for what they represent. If you eat food, then you need bees. So we need bees as pollinators. Bees are dying off. So I'm interested in bees and how to keep having food in the future. You wrote a book on our historic relationship with bees. Over the millennia, what can we say historically bees have done for us? Well, bees have really helped us develop agriculture. So bees started being domesticated in uh, what's currently known as Egypt on the Nile River on rafts. As the pollinators would go down the river, they could then pollinate bigger crops, things that were really produced of the same species. We call those kind of more monoculture crops these days. So when you're producing a lot of the same thing on a big field, it's good to have efficient pollination. So honeybees are a great domesticated example of how we can grow together with another species to get more food. What is the difference between the agricultural standards for beekeeping and 
urban beekeeping now that you are in the urban beekeeping business? It's not that different. You know, the standards for what's required for beekeeping have got to be the same. So what we do with the Best Bees Company and my teams at MIT and at our urban beekeeping laboratory, we do all scientific beekeeping. So all of our practices are informed by the very latest publications and what's known about bee methods and and how to keep them healthy from disease. And also we're recording data as we go. So we're learning if we don't know the answers to what the treatments to diseases are, we'll do different experiments and then record the results and share them with the public. So no matter if it's urban or in the countryside or on farmland, the beekeeping practices are the same. With that being said, the data that we're recording shows that bees are doing better in, in urban areas. So in cities, we've got to put more beehives here to study why that is. If bees are dying and if we need them to pollinate for food, then how do we make sure the populations are stable enough and where do we breed? So we call these blue zones, areas with good bee longevity, good bee, uh, productivity for honey production. Those seem to be in cities so we can breed bee populations where they're doing better to replace the dead beehives in areas where they're doing worse. Tell us about the idea of a society in which bees play a role that could potentially lead to that resilience we learned so much about how to resist diseases, and this is what got me into bees as a graduate student. I wanted to understand how social organisms, you know, humans are social and bees are social too. How do they stay healthy despite living in big groups? If you think about humans, when we go to the movie theater and somebody sneezes, then you think, oh gosh, I'm going to get a cold. So how do bees stay healthy without doctors and without pharmacies and without nurses? Um, you know, without hospitals, and what can we learn from them to be healthier? So for my graduate dissertation at Tufts, I was looking at all different levels of biological organization, from genes in bees to individual interactions, cells, but at the population level too. So there's so much to explore there, and bees are a great way to test hypotheses relating to staying healthy in a group situation. What's it like in the social environment that is the beehive? It's amazing. So if anybody has yet to try beekeeping, it's a great thing to do. Right when you lift off the cover of a beehive and you just look, so much of beekeeping is building up a gut sense of experiencing what's normal in a beehive and and taking in those observations from smells to sights to see how the bees interact to notice how they're not really trying to pay attention to you. You know, beekeepers do not get stung right when we open up a beehive and we really don't ever try to get stung. That's not a very fun thing, right? So once people really start to learn that bees are not trying to kill us, in fact, they're vegan, that means by nature, unlike wasps and hornets and yellow jackets, they don't have to sting. It's something where you can find this world of discovery in a beehive, looking at how they interact socially and how they can share um, ways to stay healthy from behavioral grooming to little kisses of exchanging these like spitballs of healthy molecules that will kill off bacterial and fungal infections. What are some of the more troubling diseases that you see that could be avoided through urban beekeeping? It's really fascinating. When we look at diseases of bees in urban areas, in farmlands, uh, even on flatbed trucks on our nation's highways where the majority of honeybee hives actually live these days, going from farm to farm on flatbed trucks, about 2 million beehives do that. It's fascinating to see that diseases are everywhere, and surprisingly, we don't see less disease of bees in cities, even though we do see 
improved survival of beehives over the winter time, and we do see more honey production in urban areas, both compared to surrounding suburbs and rural areas. So it's not disease levels that we see a difference of. In fact, we see some urban areas that have more disease than beehives outside. This was the craziest one, actually. So here's my official answer. Being a disease of bees expert, there is a parasitic zombie fly that started off in San Francisco beehives. It is 100% fatal, and it changes the behavior of bees to be night crawlers, and they're attracted to, to lights and street lamps, and they crawl at night. Super weird. We don't have any cure for it. And um, it's still, as far as I've seen, only in the Bay Area. But bees in the Bay Area do great. (laughs) So there's a lot more to discover. There is a huge debate right now about the role of something that we do see in the fields and the farms that we don't necessarily see in the urban environment, and that's pesticides. I know we do have pesticides, and San Francisco is one of those big hubs where we see it. But in that context, where do you think pesticides are fitting in in this debate as to how to keep bee populations healthy and sustainable? This is a great question, Jason. I'm really glad you asked because the answer is complicated and yet we need to talk about it. So as a bee scientist, I'm not one to say no pesticides, never, no way. In fact, a few years ago, I gave it a talk at Virginia Tech and after the talk, I was given a little bit of a warning and saying, listen, if you go around and say no more pesticides, then what do we do about the diseases of plants that are growing on farms? We can't just let these diseases run rampant, right? If we have the technology, it could be a moral issue to not use it to improve and stabilize our food system just as much as there could be a moral crisis if we do. So it's complicated. What I say is for pesticides to be used as directed and with a purpose. And what we do as scientific beekeepers is we're testing beehives all the time and we're finding that there are very high levels of pesticides in cities just as there are in beehives outside of cities. But what we found out about urban beehives is that they seem to be doing better in correlation with increased plant diversity. So we're seeing that there are a lot of plants in cities of very different types. So this seems to be our best evidence for why bees could be doing well where they're doing well. And it's a fun message because anybody can go out and plant more flowers. And um, anybody can send us a sample of honey on bestbees.com. We do a honey DNA service, it's called. So we'll look at all the plant DNA samples in honey, and we'll identify all the plants in the habitat around a beehive. And that gives us a measure for the first time of how many plants are in an environment. And that's the method that we used to measure how many plants were in cities. And that's what's been giving us this evidence on how to save bees rather than just staying focused on what's killing them. Do you think then that one of the best ways to be able to help bee populations is just to plant more flowers or plants or something along those lines. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I know how silly that might seem. And, you know, I often say, well, here on my gravestone, it'll say, here lies, here lies Noah, plant a flower. It's, uh, you know, a long career to say that message, but it does seem to be reflective of the evidence. We are seeing that bees are thriving in areas with increased plant diversity. So, yes, plant flowers. If you have your own property, uh, consider sharing um, ideas about how to create a meadow instead of a lawn. You can help bees and 
other pollinators in two ways. This is one by creating foraging habitat, by creating you know, flowers and more plants. And the other way is nesting habitat. So by putting beehives there. And that's what we do with the Best Bees Company. We're trying to promote getting more bees out there in a service that'll install honeybee hives and fully manage them for rooftops around cities, for grounds, and anybody who's interested. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As Noah said, there are some serious challenges to bee health. And while we continue to figure out what may be the underlying cause, one thing is certain. Bee populations continue to decline in many parts of the world. But there may be a natural option to help keep them safe. There's a type of pollen out there that may be able to improve their health. My next guest has been examining this type of pollen and many others, and he's found that this one particular type of flower can keep bees a buzzin'. His name is Jonathan Giacomini, and he is a doctoral student in the laboratory of Dr. Rebecca Irwin at North Carolina State University. Based on their research, we may be able to help bees by planting the always Instagram-ready Sunflower. Explain to us how the parasites you study harm the individual bee. I think I'd first like to point out that pathogens are widely believed to play sort of a major role in many bee declines worldwide. So if we kind of hope to mediate bee health, it's really important that we understand how bees interact with the environment as well as these pathogens. The first pathogen that we studied is a common bumblebee parasite. It's, it's a protozoan named Cristidia bombi. This is a, a single-celled organism. Uh, it's only a few micrometers in size, super small, and it resides in the gut of bees. This means that it reproduces within the digestive tract and comes out the other end. So <laughs> it trans, transmits when a host bumblebee consumes the parasite, which is usually found on flowers, and then it reproduces in a digestive tract, and then it transmits again when, it, when the bee defecates or ingests the parasite out. It's known to reduce the lifespan of individual workers, namely female bees, reduce the foraging efficiency, which is, which is really the time it takes for a bee to handle each flower. So really what it means is bees are slower than they would normally be, and more Interestingly, it reduces their ability to learn, to associate higher rewarding flowers and with better behaviors. More generally speaking, Crithidia is, is really akin to having a really nasty cold. 
It doesn't kill a bee outright like, like some other fungi or viruses, but really it can, it can weaken a bee substantially. And so if, if we consider all of the other stresses that are out there that an that individual bumblebee kind of experiences, you know, things like pesticides and habitat loss and, and food deserts and, and stuff like that, adding this parasite on top of it really can have a big impact over her lifetime. So that's one of the parasites we studied. The other parasite is, is a honeybee parasite. It's much different than the bumblebee parasite. And, and this one's called Nosema. Nosema is a microsporidian, which is pretty much part of the fungi kingdom. It's been recently classified into the fungi kingdom. It used to be considered a, a protozoan as well. To honeybees and, and their beekeepers, Nosema is really considered a devastating pathogen known to wipe out an entire colony within a season. Their microsporidia, like Nosema, are these small intracellular parasites, which means that they infect the, the epithelial cells of a bee's gut, so like the cells that are lining the bee's in digestive tract. And what happens is the fungi produce these spores when they replicate. They're ingested by adult honeybees, and when, when they feed on food and water, sources that are contaminated with, with spores, and, and a single spore can cause an infection. And by the time the infection is fully developed in a bee, you can end up with, with you know, tens of millions of spores within the gut of a, a single bee. This eventually results in the early death for that bee, and um, if it spreads within the colony, it can actually you know, cause the collapse of the entire colony. What is sunflower pollen doing to help keep bees safe? What we know is that the consumption of sunflower pollen greatly reduces Crithidia infection in individual bumblebees, in some cases narrowly eliminating the infection for more than 90% of the bees within a given experiment. Um, And this effect has been consistent and robust in a variety of ways. More importantly, the effect is consistent across multiple strains of the parasite. Crithidia that are collected from completely geographically separated areas uh, in North Carolina in the United States, as well as Massachusetts, where there's a lot, hundreds of miles between those areas. Sunflower has the same medicinal effect on different strains. We also know that the medicinal effect of sunflower pollen translates to a significant reduction in the level of infection within the entire colony. So this is not just an individual bee thing. It eventually translates to reducing infection loads for the entire colony as well as the population. So the more sunflower grown, the lower the parasite loads. This is Crithidia and bumblebees. For honeybees, we know that consumption of sunflower pollen can significantly reduce Nosema infection by about 20%. It's not as dramatic as what we found for bumblebees, but really a reduced infection, even by 20%, is likely to have huge compounding benefits for the entire colony. What would you suggest is the best way to translate the research that you've currently done into actions that can help save the bees uh, in the present? From an agricultural point of view, there are currently no or or few effective treatments on the market for both of the pathogens that we've studied. This includes both commercially available bumblebees as well as honeybees. For instance, the most effective control for Nosema in honeybees really relies on just maintaining strong hives and trying to take precautions to reduce the buildup of disease. There are very few effective drugs. In fact, of the ones that are available, they're pretty devastating for the bee as well. From a more ecological point of view, 
our research really strongly suggests that there are certain plant species that play a disproportionate role in mediating bee health. What that means is, is our results really kind of present this relatively easy approach to promoting bee health. And sunflowers are part of a very large family of plants and are found throughout many parts of the earth. Often they're easy to grow, they're well adapted to their, to their respected climate zones, and they sort of provide a variety of resources for bees and other wildlife. So, you know, sunflowers certainly are not the magic pill that will cure bee disease. There's no such thing. But they may be a simple and somewhat elegant tool to add to the repertoire when it comes to managing bee health. Would you then recommend that everyone just go out and plant some sunflower seeds? Absolutely, really. But really, we think it's a good idea to include sunflowers in pollinator habitats alongside a diverse wildflower mixture. In other words, don't just plant sunflowers alone. Plant them with a variety of different flowering species. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to learn all about the art of beekeeping. Our guest teacher is Paul Kelly, and he is the manager of the Honey Bee Research Center at the University of Guelph. For the last 32 years, he's been talking about bees and sharing his knowledge in courses designed for you and me. What is it about beekeeping that has kept you interested in it for over 30 years? They're fascinating creatures. They uh, are full of surprises. I, you know, read all the books. They don't always do everything according to the books. They're, they're just, I love the, their social interactions, all the way they, ways that they communicate, and the fact that we can do so much with them. We can manage them and have them produce quite a variety of different uh, products and still have them thrive. Uh, so that symbiotic kind of relationship in agriculture is kind of appealing. That's interesting that you say a symbiotic relationship between humans and bees. What's your perspective on that relationship between humans and insects? Well, uh, we've relied on bees for thousands of years as a source of sweetness and as a source of light. Uh, the beeswax was a, is an excellent source of light for candles and it's been used uh, for religious purposes for thousands of years. But that sweetness was kind of a rare commodity in nature. We're so used to sugars in uh, being so readily available, but that was not the case uh, historically. So people found that the, those uh, they were able to get light and sweetness from these bees and then started learning more about them and the society that they create because we have become so conscious about the role of bees in maintaining human society and food supplies, how has research changed over the last 30 years from what you've seen? Our focus here has for the longest time been, uh, back since the 1800s actually, has been focused on bee health. So it hasn't changed in that regard. It's just that the challenges are much more extensive than they used to be. There were bacterial diseases that were a serious problem in the 1800s and early 1900s and so work that was done right here helped to address some of those issues but since then we've got other bacterial diseases viral diseases fungal diseases and a couple parasitic mites that have been particularly problematic so that we've had uh, that our fo- our main focus is the varroa mite its uh, mm-hmm. Latin name is Varroa destructor. It used to be called Varroa jacobsoni, but that wasn't bad enough, so it got changed to Varroa destructor. 
and they are really devastating little critters. These mites, when they feed on those nutrients within the bee, they really seriously affect the bee, but they also poke holes in them, and then the virus can get in, and the vectored in that way are just as bad as the mites. So you add, add those up together, and the fact that they decrease the bee's immunity to other organisms, and they, they are the most serious problem that we have. Has any of the research that you've been doing at the Honey Bee Research Center been helping to improve the quality of life for these bees? Yeah, absolutely. We're, 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 our focus is looking at naturally sourced materials for improving bee health. We've worked on many different essential plant oils that are toxic to the varomites, but not toxic to bees. And as you can imagine, it's a bit of a challenge. We're trying to kill one critter that lives on another critter inside a box of food that people might be eating. There are challenges in, in using naturally sourced materials. A safer way to go for us, so we've we found that the essential oil from the plant thyme is toxic to mites, and we are working on a delivery system for that. We've come up with something that's 95% effective. The challenge now is getting it uh, registered and commercially available for beekeepers. We're also looking at pre- and probiotic materials to help the gut flora of bees. We hear lots and lots about that for humans, but it works for other organisms as well. So we found several very promising compounds that will help control these gut parasites by improving the, the, the gut flora in the, in the bee. We're also looking at breeding bees. We've found that Bees that are really good at grooming mites off themselves, like just uh, using their legs and, and plucking these mites off their bodies. If they're good at doing that, we've found a good correlation between that and low population growth of the varroa mites. So now we're moving into a large-scale field trial where we're testing large numbers of colonies for these low mite population growths and then checking to make sure it's actually this grooming behavior that's uh, giving the bees that uh, level of resistance. And I really do think it's going to be incredibly useful to be able to help maintain and, and hopefully restore bee populations all over the world. How can people learn more about what's going on at the Honey Bee Research Center and maybe even take a course on beekeeping? We offer courses at a variety of different levels. We have a university level course, and then we have weekend courses that uh, we teach for people that want to get involved in beekeeping. We teach about 700 individuals in courses every year and have right now about 4,000 people coming to our center a year for a variety of reasons, including tours. So we offer tours for the general public, mostly group tours, but we do have sort of drop-in sessions every second Wednesday through June, July, and August for, for families and smaller groups of people to to come so there's lots lots of information about those tours on on our website and information about courses and so on our website well that's it for this week's Sascast. i hope it has pollinated your mind with a new understanding and appreciation for the bee and maybe inadvertently pittsburgh black and yellow black and yellow for curious cast this is the super awesome science show We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we want to show our gratitude by taking those questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. 
We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show him some sass. Hold up. 